0: Hello and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia with Dr. James White. Episode 7 The Italian Job The Tale of Raffaele Scazzi. Our tale begins in the Black Sea port of Odessa in the early years of the 19th century. Built on a limestone cliff rising above the surrounding flat and grassy southern steppe. Currently the town resembles a construction site, more than a place of human habitation. After all, it had only been founded a few years before, in 1794. A scaffold-cluttered cathedral sits, melancholically awaiting completion. Some ill-kept government buildings grace the unfinished boulevards. Two factories one producing macaroni, the other cosmetics, join the assemblage of brickyards. But the shimmering azure harbour is already a bustling place, filled with ships. Many are loading up with Russian grain to be exported across the Black Sea to Mediterranean depots. Still in Odessa's future is its role as a unique melting pot of the Russian Empire, a meeting point of Russian, Ukrainian, Tatar, Jewish, Serbian, Bulgarian and Greek cultures, home to shipping magnates, Zionist revolutionaries and Yiddish gangsters alike. However, the city was already establishing its role as a gateway between steppe and sea, as one German visitor noted. The streets are, like all new Russian streets, immensely broad and so completely open that one can often see the sea at one end and the steppe at the other and look from the middle of the city at once into the waste of waters and the waste of grass. And it was by this waste of waters that today's hero, Raffaele scazzi arrived in Odessa. A neer do and gambler, he found himself in the upstart port after some rather murky dealings went down in his home city, the northern Italian hub of Genoa. Initially working in a betting den, he managed to move up in the world by getting appointed as a bookkeeper, to the Renault trading firm. However, he never quite kicked his addiction to games of chance, and it seemed that his new existence would be just as insalubrious as the old. But then Skazzy accidentally met the man who would transform not only his life but also that of Odessa, its recently appointed governor, the Duc de Richelieu. A French aristocrat who had joined Russian service in 1789, Richelieu had chosen to remain in the empire largely out of personal antipathy to Napoleon Bonaparte, currently rampaging across Europe in various campaigns of conquest. When appointed as governor of Odessa and the surrounding province of Novorossia, or New Russia, in 1803, Richelieu was given one main task by Emperor Alexander I, recruit and exploit foreign talent as much as possible to settle and build up the Russian south. Evidently, Skazy impressed the new governor, perhaps through his quick wit and immeasurable charm, perhaps through his capacious imagination, perhaps through his contacts back in Italy. It was not unusual for foreigners to occupy government offices in Europe at the time. Russia, in particular, had long made use of them, given the empire's need for well-educated technical experts. But it did on occasion generate complaints as one Russian official moaned. Foreigners here in Russia are preferred in all respects, so that any scamp, just by being a stranger, can easily play the role of a great man. Scazzi was most certainly a scamp, but Richelieu saw that he might also prove one day a great man. So, in 1808, the Italian was dispatched to a small settlement in the northwest of the Caucasus Mountains, where he was to act as a trading consultant with the Circassian natives. The Russians wanted their timber, regarded as excellent in quality and perfect for building up the navy. Whilst there, the gambler had another stroke of luck. He struck up a relationship with a local princess, known in Russian as Yekaterina. After her capture during the siege of Anapa by Russian troops, she had married the former governor of the region, a union that did not prevent her from becoming Skazy's lover. Her assistance was of immeasurable value to the Italian adventurer. Her royal lineage, contacts and knowledge of local languages allowed Scassi to penetrate deep into the peaks and ravines of the Caucasus, a region rightly regarded by the Russians as immeasurably dangerous due to the hostile mountain tribes. To the shock of local administrators, Scassi not only returned from his perilous trip, but did so with success in hand having established a trading base. A further deal followed in 1814, with two local princes allowing the Russians to take timber from their lands. Skazy now proposed an ambitious plan. Rather than just export timber, the Russians would import their own goods, particularly salt. If they did so at cheap prices, they would outcompete the Ottoman Turks, the normal trading partner of the Mountain Peoples and Russia's mortal enemy in the region. Thus, the peoples of the Western Caucasus would be pulled into the Russian orbit through the peaceful means of trade, and not by violent and destructive conflicts across terrain that made normal military campaigning very difficult indeed. This cause, the creation of a Russo-Caucasian trade network, was to occupy Skazy's attention for much of the subsequent decades. As part of this enterprise, Skazy turned his eyes towards another project, the rebuilding of the port of Kerch, conveniently located on the eastern seaboard of the Crimean peninsula. But before we explore this any further, we need to say a few words about the context that united Odessa, the Caucasus and Kerch, the three locales that had formed Skaz's life in Russia. This context was the Russian Empire's expansion to the south, to the shores of the Black Sea and deep into the Caucasus. For much of the preceding centuries, the southern steppes had been a zone of threat to Russia. As early as the 13th century, it was this corridor of endless grasslands that the Mongol horde of Chinggis Khan had used to subjugate the Russian princes for more than 200 years. After the great Mongol Empire had collapsed, it had left in its wake a series of petty Tartar kingdoms, including the Khanate of the Crimea, which enjoyed the protection The powerful Ottoman Turkish Empire just across the waters. The fast moving horse archers of the Crimeans had proved immensely damaging to the emerging power of Moscow. In 1571, the Khan had burnt down the Russian capital, taking as many as 150,000 captives to be sold on the Black Sea slave market. Such raids were a persistent problem, leading the Russians to engage in one of the greatest projects of military engineering seen in early modern Europe. Lines of earthen ramparts and wooden fortresses that stretched for thousands of miles across the north of the steppe zone. From behind these considerable defences, the Russians could employ their overwhelming advantage in firearms and cannons to murderous effect against the horsemen. But this was only a stopgap solution. To put an end to the problem for good, the Russians needed to definitively conquer the region By the end of the 17th century, Russian armies could reach the Crimea, but had problems penetrating it. The Crimean troops set fire to the dry steppe grasses, sealing themselves behind a wall of flame. No less a problem, the steppe had few resources that could supply slow-moving infantry armies of tens of thousands of men, which left the Russians dependent on stretched and easily breakable supply lines. By the reign of Catherine the Great. 1762 to 1797, the situation had changed. Russian armies were now besting the Ottoman Turks, the protectors of the Crimean Khans, in the eastern Balklands, and Russian logistics had improved to the point that they could sustain large-scale, long-term campaigns deep into the ocean of grass. Exploiting internecine civil wars in the Crimea and the increasing ineffectiveness of the Ottoman armies, the Russians finally conquered the peninsula in 1783. But victory brought its own problems. What was to be done with the underpopulated south? The Crimea in particular had suffered devastating population losses as a consequence of a decade of infighting and foreign invasion. George Matthew Jones, a British observer, described Kerch the town which Skazy sought to restore. Kerch is said to be a considerable town as recently as its occupation by the Russians, who, in the true spirit of devastation, destroyed everything not absolutely necessary for themselves, and often, in their folly and blindness, destroyed what ultimately proved essential to them. Building materials have become so scarce and valuable that everything bearing the stamp of antiquity has been sacrificed. Here was the reason for the foundation of Odessa and Alexander I's instruction to the Duc de Richelieu in 1803. The plan was to turn the Black Sea coast and its steppe hinterland into a fertile garden of Eden, prosperous, profitable and peaceful. It was economically and strategically valuable too. From this coast, the Russian merchant marine could easily reach the ports of Italy and southern France, while the military navy could strike out at the Turks. All this hinged on settling the area, with whom did not particularly matter. Russian diplomatic legations proffered invitations to settle the bounteous southern provinces across Europe, offering free land, tax exemptions, community autonomy and free practice of their religious faiths. Italians, Germans, Greeks, Swiss, Serbs, Bulgarians... And even a few Swedes heeded the call, some heading to urban settlements like Odessa and Kerch, others bravely setting forth into the steppe to found their own villages and farms. And of course, the government promoted resettlement to its own people, although here it was just as capable of using the stick as the carrot. Several large communities of religious dissidents found that their punishment was precisely exile to these new southern climes. The conquest of the south also initiated intensive contact between the Russians and the countless clans of the Caucasus Mountains. Already Russian armies had crossed this tricky terrain at numerous points in the 18th century to wage war against the Persians and the Turks, but they were vulnerable. Diplomacy with the tribes could suddenly fluctuate, leaving the thin columns of troops, supplies and communications winding their way single file over treacherous mountain passes and precarious gorges in severe danger. The ancient kingdoms of Georgia, long allies of the Tsars due to their shared orthodox faith and mutual hostility towards the Persians and Turks, voluntarily signed away their independence between 1801 and 1813, but the northern Muslim peoples, fiercely independent and warlike, were hardly likely to do the same all of which left the Russians in a quandary. What to do with these people? From the 1760s onwards, the solution had been war. But perhaps there was another way. Scassi's plan of peaceful trade relations, facilitated through a thriving modern port in Kerch, was one possible alternative. Although Scassi's erstwhile patron, Richelieu, had returned to France in 1814 to become Prime Minister of the restored French monarchy. By 1821, the Italian had earned enough trust and credit for his Kirch plan to be approved by Emperor Alexander I, who sent 20,000 rubles for construction work to begin. Scazzi gleefully wrote to his brother Onofrio with news of his appointment. Finally, the clear sky promises me a good future. Everything is solidly settled. The unavoidable prosperity of this port so important for the commerce that will develop between Asiatic and European Russia with the nations of the south, will bequeath to future generations the name of Skazy, and Genoa will be proud of having a citizen on the shores of the Bosphorus, who will let its commerce and ancient relations rise again. His plans were indeed ambitious, for he intended to turn the wreckage of Kerch into a beautifully appointed seaside town, complete with gorgeous promenades, welcoming broad boulevards and lavish garden complexes. Given the ruined state of the town, the empty lands outside it and the seemingly impassable obstacle of lacking fresh water, many in the Russian government had only mockery and contempt for the Italians' plans. But he pulled it off, building a canal system to serve as a means of irrigation. Scazzi was particularly successful in his dream to turn Kerch into a garden city. By 1826, he had managed to grow 6,000 French fruit trees and 18,000 grapevines imported from Burgundy and Bordeaux, along with wild Chinese mulberry bushes and some American trees. His own gardens were especially luxuriant, a lush display of fruits and flowers from all over southern Europe. Setting up harbour facilities and large warehouses, Kerch also began to flourish commercially. The town's location at the mouth of the Sea of Azov and opposite the Caucasian coast made it an ideal place for trade and also to quarantine ships from plague wracked foreign lands before they entered any deeper into the empire. And unlike Odessa, whose bay froze over for two of every three winters, the warm waters of Kerch were accessible. Even in the depths of December. Finally, Skazi was not only invested in Kerch's present, but also in its distant past. Long, long before either the Russians or the Tatars had dwelt in the Crimea, the promontory had been the site of ancient Greek colonies, founded as early as the 7th century BCE. Their ruins liberally dotted the landscape. Although the Russians had been more interested initially in establishing their rule over the region than the crumbling pile of rocks they inherited, they soon came to understand the virtues of possessing this unique remnant of classical antiquity. With it, they too could now lay claim to the heritage of the ancient Greeks, the progenitors of Europe, no doubt a boon in the Russian government's constant efforts to portray itself as civilised before the Western world, ever persistent in its denunciations of Russia as a power of the barbarous East. Skazy sought to organise his new passion for archaeology, helping to officially found the Kirch Museum of Antiquities. He also founded a commission to organise digs and displays, a patronage network to fund the labour, and a new journal to publish the results. Creating a trade network with peoples the Russians regarded as brutal savages Raising a prosperous garden city from a ruin, saving the immeasurably precious findings of Hellenic antiquity from disregard and destruction. It would seem that Skazy had done far more than anyone could ever have expected from a wandering Gionese gambler, seemingly picked up at random by a former governor. But all these achievements were not enough to save him from the vicissitudes of Russian court politics and the ever-shifting geopolitical situation in the North Caucasus. His ideas about peacefully harnessing the Caucasian peoples through trade were never popular among Russia's military elite, a group that rose to prominence with the accession of Alexander I's brother, Nicholas I, in 1825. For them, the tribes and clans of the mountains were nothing more than brutes who would constantly threaten Russia's interests unless tamed by force. Skazy's notions were to such men at best naive at worst foolishly weak one of them described Skazy as a wimpish worm so taking advantage of near constant raiding between resident cossacks and the men of the mountains general Maxim vlasov led a campaign of supposed retribution but led to the destruction of four native villages Skazy publicly protested this murderous rampage, an act of humanity that, in 1829, cost him all of his positions in imperial service. Soon he was caught up in investigations over financial malpractice and embezzlement, while others denounced his schemes as having produced no good results, despite the very real timber trade going on and Scazzi's use of his personal links with the Caucasians to negotiate the release of Russian prisoners of war. What happened to him after his fall from grace remains a mystery, although some hints are offered by another Italian merchant visiting the Crimea in 1846. He heard tell of a Genoese adventurer who had made and lost a fortune while dealing with trade between the Crimea and the Caucasus. Sadly, the merchant reports this man had been driven to madness by his gambling losses and thus ended his days in an insane asylum in St. Petersburg. Skazy is almost entirely forgotten today. All that remains to memorialise his legacy is an area on the outskirts of Kerch, unofficially dubbed by locals as Skazy's Fountain. But in one respect, his efforts were not wasted. Kerch became one of the largest population centres in the Crimea, buoyed in particular by the discovery of vast iron deposits. Today, around 147,000 people call Skazi's city their home. And although his efforts to induce the Caucasian peoples into the Russian sphere of influence through peaceful trade came to naught, perhaps the Russian generals should not have dismissed him so readily. The bloody and destructive fighting, which wiped entire villages off the map and pushed many thousands of refugees across the Turkish border, continued until 1864, when the Russian Empire finally assimilated all of the Caucasian mountain range. The poisoned relationship this bitter invasion created between Russia and some of the Caucasian peoples continues to have reverberations to this very day. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.